Hi, I'm Ruth Schwenk, and I'm so thrilled you're listening in with us at Root Like Faith. It is our deepest desire to encourage and equip men and women to be rooted in God's Word, transformed by the love of Jesus, and moved by His mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing is more important. Well, we are continuing our summer school mini-series today, and I think you're going to love our guest. He is fabulous. Honey, Tell our listeners what you guys are talking about and who our guest is. Yeah, well, first of all, our guest is Dr. Sean McDowell. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, just a real privilege to be able to have him on Root Like Faith. I remember being in high school and reading his dad's books. Um, mm-hmm. So many of our listeners will be familiar with Sean, and they'll be familiar with his dad, Josh McDowell. Mm. And so um, I remember being in high school and just being so influenced by, in particular, evidence that demands a verdict. Mm. I remember being a youth pastor, taking groups and, and listening uh, to uh, Josh McDowell as a guest speaker. Mm-hmm. And now Sean um, has followed in his dad's footsteps and is just as an incredible mind and just such a great um uh, great posture when it comes to mm. to defending the faith, and there's mm-hmm. just so few people like him that have a sharp mind, but but also a soft heart. And I think he just does an incredible job of articulating the faith, but doing doing it in a very gentle, loving mm. way. And so I'm just super honored to have him on today to ha- have had the opportunity to talk with him. And we're talking about the Bible and can it be trusted? Yeah, let me let me share a little bit about Sean with our listeners. So Dr. Sean McDowell is a gifted communicator with a passion for equipping the church and in particular young people to make the case for the Christian faith. He connects with audiences in a tangible way through humor and stories while imparting hard evidence and logical support for viewing all areas of life through a biblical worldview. Sean is an associate professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Sean is the author, co-author, or editor of over 20 books. His most recent book is entitled Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. So today, Pat and Sean, like Pat said, they're going to be talking about the Bible and whether we can trust the Bible. Is it even true? Like, how do we know it's true? How does God speak through the Bible? Anything else, honey, that you're going to be talking talking about? Just talking about faith in general. Mm. uh, Sean's going to be sharing his story and just kind of how he came to faith and what it was like to grow up um, Mm. with uh, a dad who was living and working in the world of apologetics and just his own faith story. And so it's just a really, really Mm. good conversation as we continue on in this summer school mini-series um, I just know that this is going to be a great encouragement mm. and it's just going to continue to, I think, to build and encourage mm. uh, faith in, in our listeners. Mm. That's awesome. And you can follow Sean on Instagram at Sean McDowell, S-E-A-N McDowell, M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L. So let's get this started. This is going to be really good. Well, Sean, welcome to Root Like Faith. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'm honored. Well, Sean, as you know, we're as we were talking before um, recording this, you know, we're in the middle of this podcast series where we're just talking about the basics of Christian belief, and so I'm just really excited to to have you on and to kind of have this conversation talking about the reliability of the Bible. Can the Bible be trusted? And so, before we get to that question, we're, we're going to talk more about that here in, in in a few minutes. But I'd love for you to share just a bit of your own story, and in particular, you know, your your faith journey. And so if you just kind of speak to that, you know, I, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And so I've shared ah. a bit of my story, you know, on the podcast in the past. And I think most of our listeners are going to be familiar with who you are. If they're in my gender, I'm in my mid forties, they're going to know your dad. 
Um, and, and so sure. just kind of love to hear your faith journey and if there were unique sort of challenges or questions you have wrestled with along the way. Yeah, that's a wonderful question to start with. Uh, obviously, with a father like I have, Josh McDowell, who's written so many books, just a world influential leader, speaker, debater, uh, there's no way that wouldn't radically influence and shape my own journey. Right. And I grew up thinking that Christianity, it just it made sense, never really questioned it. Uh, I saw my parents live out their faith. They're certainly human, but they lived it out with a consistency and kind of a dynamism and in an attractive way. Uh, my dad always just raised me to think and wrestle with ideas and talk things through. And I think if someone had asked me in, you know, in before college, why I thought someone was not a Christian, I wouldn't have said these words, but it would have been in the back of my mind. I would have thought, you know what, they just haven't read evidence that demands verdict or more than Carpenter. <laughs> like, it's really that simple. Right. And then of course, I'm in college in the mid 90s, you and I are about the same age. And that's when we didn't have Google yet, but you could first search the internet. And I don't even remember how it happened, but I came across this atheist secular web that largely began, as far as I understand, responding to my dad's book chapter by chapter with doctors, mm. historians, lawyers. And I'm looking at this going, wow, I have never seen such smart people push back on what I thought was obviously true. And you couple that with just kind of being in college, trying to figure out, okay, who am I? I'm away from home. Just all that life stage challenges. And, you know, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but I think it just kind of, you know, flipped the apple cart over for me a little bit and had a conversation with my dad, not knowing how he was going to respond. And we we're in Breckenridge, Colorado. I, and I think it was somewhere between kind of my freshman, maybe sophomore year. And basically said, dad, I want to know the truth, but I'm not sure that I think Christianity is fully true. My dad didn't freak out. He essentially encouraged me to seek after truth. He told me that he and my mom would love me no matter what, and to only give up what I had been taught if I was convinced it was false. Wow. Don't rebel and reject things uh, for any other reason, which a lot of people do. And that was great advice. I don't think I ever stopped believing, but I think that was kind of a moment for me that was like, okay, why do I believe this? Am I riding on my parents' coattail? I got to figure out what I think is true. And also, you know, I think God was also really just breaking me in many ways at the same time of a lot of my pride in terms of I didn't do the big sins growing up. So I probably wouldn't have put it in these words, but had a lot of self-righteousness that because I didn't drink and smoke and chew and hang with girls that do to borrow a very outdated phrase, <laughs> you know, I was much more like the older son than the younger son. So it was kind of a coupling of having my own experience of need for grace and answering some of my own questions about the Bible, the stuff we're going to talk about today and Christianity that really kind of formulated my own faith journey. Yeah, that's so good. You know, we, we have, we just wrapped up a, a series here on, on Root Like Faith, uh, talking about faith in the family. And so we covered, it was from Mother's Day to Father's Day, and we covered a lot of different topics and how as a parent, you pass on faith. And so I think what you just shared within your own family, within your own home and your own faith journey is, is going to, to really speak to a lot of our listeners who have young kids or kids that are, you know, teenagers, high schoolers. And so that's so, so good. Let me ask you just sort of one follow-up from that before we move on, you know, outside of your, your parents, um, like who would you say, like for me, I, I had a track coach 
in junior high um, and then had a youth pastor that were so influential. As I look back, uh, God used those those two men um, in just profound ways. But outside of your home, outside of your family, who would you say was most influential in shaping you spiritually and, and even intellectually? I'd have to point to a few people. Number one was a few of my basketball coaches at that time. I was playing at Biola University. In particular, Coach Misik and Coach Holmquist, who is still there, just had a huge influence on my life in different ways. Uh, thinkers, people like William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland, uh, said a lot of the same things that my dad had said growing up, but sometimes you need to hear it from somebody else in a different way. So intellectually, they shaped me. And then my resident director's name is Rob Lone. And he was one of the people, I was an RA in a dorm, he was an RD, and he just invited me into a conversation. We were reading Henry Nowen, reflecting on the spiritual life, talking about doubt, like just this whole side of like what it means to be a Christian and grow amidst uncertainty. He just gave me space to wrestle with those, which the older I get, I realized was such a gift. Yeah, that's that's amazing. It's funny. I, I know Rob. Rob came out and spoke uh, one of oh, the wow. one of the residencies that I was was there doing my doctoral studies at Biola, and have kept in, in touch with him a bit through his ministry. And uh, yeah, he he's a phenomenal guy. I know he had, had co-written uh, "Deep Mentoring," I believe is the title of that yeah. of that book. And uh, yeah, no no Rob. And so that that's interesting to hear hear you share about about his influence. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that. That's really good. I, I you want to ask you sort of moving on, I mean, your life in ministry, you dedicated it to really helping people understand the Christian faith and so much of your writing and speaking is in, in the area of apologetics. I mean, just giving a defense of the faith, much like your, your dad um, did. I, I can still remember, by the way, exactly where I was at in, in a stadium. I was a youth pastor with a group of kids. I think it was a choir of the fires, a youth conference. And your dad was speaking oh, yeah. there and yeah. just, you know, being blown away. And, and our, you know, and so just to see you continuing on, that must be so, um, such an honor um, and, uh, for, uh, for he and your mom, um, but to, to know that you are continuing on in, in that, uh, that legacy, that ministry. But, you know, it seems over the last couple of years, I mean, we're just hearing more and more stories just even recently um, you know, of prominent Christian leaders who are walking away from their faith. I, I mean, is there a, in your opinion, is there a crisis of faith in our culture today? And if so, like, what do you think is contributing to that? I do think there's a crisis of faith. And I think some of the uh, famous people we've seen, like I've had conversations with John Steingard, who used to be the lead singer of Hawk Nelson. I've had him on my channel, uh, a pastor uh, who is kind of deconstructed to more of a progressive Christian kind of view. We've had that conversation. I've had a conversation with people like Bart Campolo, who now would describe mm -hmm. himself as an atheist. Yeah. It feels like every couple of weeks, you know, Joshua Harris, we're hearing about these stories. And in some ways, a couple of things are going on. Number one is whenever someone deconstructs their faith and they've had a platform, there's a million people who are going to step in and push their story because it promotes a narrative that they want heard. Right. So I've never had the secular press in any way come to me and go, your dad was an apologist and you are too. <laughs> Tell me about that. Right. We want to do a story. That's like a point. I'm being facetious, but that yep. doesn't happen. It's never happened. Yep. <laughs> so I'm always asking myself, how much of this is a phenomena of the media? And also everybody today, it's like you have to express yourself and to be authentic 
tell your story and come out of the closet, that's a piece of it too. So I just ask myself, how much of it is that versus an increase in people really deconstructing and losing their faith? And I do think what I said, there's some truth in that, but there is enough data to show that there's a ton of people disengaging the church, not all their faith, and a not insignificant number of people disengaging their faith as well. I wrote a I wrote a book called So the Next Generation Will Know, and my co-author is a detective, and he tracked down every single study we could find over the past 10 or 12 years of kids disengaging the church and why. And one conclusion we say is that the phenomena is real. There's enough data to see a large number of young people disengage in the church. Now, only God knows if they ever really were believers, but it's enough data to give us pause. Why? I think there's two big things at the heart of it. Number one is there's so often a relational brokenness in almost every deconstruction story I hear. And I don't want to say always. There's so often brokenness with a pastor, with parents, relationally. I mean, one of the largest studies shows that the top reason faith is transmitted is a, quote, warm relationship with the father. So when divorce happens and there's hypocrisy and broken relationships, that contributes significantly to people disengaging. Second is I think the the significant number of people leaving the church in some ways has just revealed – how shallow many of our teaching and living and preaching is within the church. Mm. That we're not living this radical life that Jesus has called us to. We're not teaching apologetics and worldview and theology with some depth, with an urgency to reach the culture that we're in. And so kids get challenged on these apologetic issues. They get challenged on these moral issues. And it rocks their faith because they've been told to be a Christian is just to have certain emotions and have an experience. And I'm not downplaying experience and emotion, but if it's not rooted in truth and you get challenged in your beliefs, right. you're going to chuck it. Yeah. Man, that is so good. So true. We, I, Gosh, we could, we could spend the whole episode talking about what you, what you just said there in terms of what's being taught and how it's being taught and, and, and some of the, 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 the consequences we're seeing today. Uh, because of the lack of that, and so that is that is so good. I, I appreciate that. Well, I I, w- I want to move on because I know we we want to get to this topic of the Bible, and again, we're we're in this summer school series talking about different doctrines, uh, the Trinity, um, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We're we're talking about the reliability of the Bible today, and so you work with a lot of a lot of students. You work with a lot of college students. You of course work with adults. Um, but, but I mean, what are you seeing as it relates to the Bible? What, what particular attitudes are you noticing or beliefs that that you're noticing most often, uh, today? Well, I would say a couple things. I'd say number one, some of the big intellectual challenges, some of the big challenges used to be primarily intellectual. So if you talk to my dad, who's spoken on 1200 universities going back to like the sixties, He tells a story about how the kinds of questions have shifted over the decades. In other words, it used to be, give me some evidence, proves that that's true. That's false. There was an assumption that there was such a thing as truth, that it mattered, and we could debate to discover what it is as a whole. 
that started to shift you know, in the 90s and the 2000s too, that's intolerant to say that you have the truth. You're bigoted to say that you have the truth. That's not inclusive to say that your worldview is right. So there's been an epistemological shift. Now, you know, the word about five years ago in culture was post-truth. Now we hear, well, truth is oppressive. That's just your truth, not my truth. So the way people even approach these questions has shifted. I also think it shifted from the primary objection is that Christianity being false to that Christianity is bad, that God is not good as understood in the scriptures. So it shifted to moral questions, whether it's a problem of evil, whether it's hell, in a lot of cases, ethical issues that Christians hold or allegedly hold tied to yeah. political positions, tied to the LGBTQ conversation, tied to immigration tried to tied to Trumpism. I mean, all these things get mixed in together. And we're now seeing that some of the biggest objections are moral as opposed to just being intellectual. So that's a pretty radical shift we have to keep in mind. Now, does that make the intellectual questions less important? No, we have to approach them and frame them very differently than we did in the past. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, real quickly, I remember as a kid, and I've shared this on the podcast before, but I remember as a kid, just by God's grace, having a love for the Bible. And I I mean, I can remember being like, I don't know whether I was nine, 10 years old. And I just, I was interested in spiritual things. And I would go upstairs and I had, I had this, you know, this red uh, illustrated picture Bible that I just loved to read. And I just, from so from an early age, like I just loved the Bible and I was very interested in spiritual things. And as I got older, I just remember, you know, nobody told me, hey, you should be reading your Bible on your own. Um, I just, I, I just wanted to. And that was a work of God's spirit in my life. And I'm grateful for for the grace that God has given me there. And, and there were times as I got in to, you know, my later years in high school and got, I did my undergrad at Moody that, that I was wrestling with maybe some of those those intellectual um, you know challenges and, and wanting some evidence and you're right how people are approaching that question today is very different and so that, that was kind of my story I know I know that's that's not normal probably for um, for everybody and so it, it is so fascinating to to hear how you're describing you know the ways that people are approaching you know non Christians are approaching um, the Bible and their attitude towards it and and therefore how we sort of enter into those conversations so. That's a great segue into just kind of talking now about about the reliability of the Bible. I mean, let's let's talk about I mean, what what are some of those those evidences for the reliability of the Bible? And then based on what you what you just said, what are some ways that that we can begin having those kinds of conversations from that perspective because of the cultural shift you, you described? Yeah. So if I may, let me give kind of a precursor to this, because I think sometimes if we just launch into evidences, we miss some of the heart cry of this generation, as important as evidence is. And you know, I've updated the book with my dad, yep. Evidence that Demands yep. a Verdict. So I think it's as important now as ever. But here's one question I'll ask with students. I'll say, let's go back to the garden. Of all the, the commandments God could give, why does God give the commandment not to eat fruit to Adam and Eve? Why that commandment? Why doesn't God say, Adam, don't kill Eve? Like that would be intuitive and obvious and easy. Why does he give a counter intuitive claim? 
because fruit is meant to be eaten, puts it in the center of the garden. It almost feels like he's setting them up for failure. I think the answer is if the finite is going to be in relationship with the infinite, the created with the creator, we're going to have to trust God even when things don't make sense, even when we don't get it and we don't see it. So God wants to be in relationship with Adam and Eve. He has to set up a commandment that enables them to say, you know what? This doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to trust God because God is good and worthy of trust. So students today, we need to start with that God is good and his commandments are an expression of his goodness. I think when young people understand here's who Jesus is, here's his heart for us, then there's more of an openness to jump into some of those evidences because they understand it on a heart level. So that's one way I've really been careful to try to shift as I talk about evidences as I can. Yeah, that's that's really good. I mean, I think just from that starting point, I think, you know, from there, if, if you have a friend who is wrestling with Christianity and, and they're wrestling with the truthfulness of the Bible. And, and I think what you have just described that, that um, is such a, an important starting point and such a different starting point than, than maybe how we, we tend to engage in those conversations. But when, when somebody said, you know, maybe I'll say it this way, years ago when we started um, the church that, that I'm now the campus pastor of, we partnered with another church in town. But one of yeah. the things we did is we went over to the University of Michigan. You know, we, we, our, our church is not far from there. It's not far from Eastern Michigan uh, University as well. But we went over and we began, uh, you know, I gave uh, our, our core team, uh, you know, three or four questions to, to go ask students. And we walked around campus and just engaged in some great conversations. And, and oftentimes the, the Bible came up and it was, it was not only just a reliability question, but for some students, it was a, re- it was a relevance issue. Um, and it wasn't that they were opposed to the reliability of the Bible. They just saw the Bible as completely outdated and irrelevant to their life yep. today. I think that's so right on. And that is my experience, too, both from data and experience, that the Bible is a nice book, but it doesn't really relate to my dating life and my work schedule and my identity in politics today. It's a nice ancient book, but totally irrelevant. So in some minds... There used to be a cultural sense that, you know, the probably previous generation still felt like that to a degree. You know, it's an ancient book and I don't really know how to read it anyways. But there still was a sense that the Bible's good and you should follow what the Bible teaches. Now you add that irrelevance that you're talking about. And there's still a sense that like, wait a minute, if the Bible defines marriage this way or ever supported slavery, I think the Bible is immoral and bad. There's that layer that I think is even increasingly recent in the minds of many young people today. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. And, and so speak to speak because I, I think what you're saying is it is so important. Depending on on you know the the age of the person, um, you know that that is so important. It's such a different starting point for somebody and and helping them, like you said, um, see the goodness uh, in in God's commands, see the wisdom there. Uh, we've talked before in the podcast that, that you know the Bible always presents two ways to live. There's 
there's obedience and disobedience and, and to walk in God's wisdom. Uh, there's, there's fruit, there's a blessing there and to disobey God, there's a curse there and, and God wants life for us. And, and it's in many ways, what you're describing, they're helping people see the wisdom of what God's word says as it relates to, to different issues. Um, and, and the brokenness that happens when we, when we go against that, whether that's in issues of sexuality um, or marriage, uh, you know, some of the, those that you describe, but for the person that, that needs evidence, because there are plenty of people out there, uh, you know, uh, that, that still need the, the evidence. And, I, and I, I've heard you talk before about external evidence and, and internal evidence. I mean, just very briefly, I mean, wh- what are some of those, um, I think, key evidences that you would point to to help somebody have a greater um, you know, confidence in, in God's word? I love that you keep bringing it back to the evidence because the recent Gen Z study from Barna said, I think it was 46 or 47% of Gen Zers, those like 10 to 25, are open to evidence for a particular faith. Mm. So we need to go that route. And it resonates still with a lot of young people. You know, it comes to Bible, there's so many angles we could take. We could talk about manuscript authority. And one of the things that my father and I do in our inter in our uh, in our recent book is we do an exhaustive search on the most early to get the greatest number and get an accurate account of how many manuscripts are out there and also Greek ones to see how carefully we can reconstruct what was originally written down. Now this doesn't tell us it's true, but the bottom line is even many classical scholars will agree that the Bible was transmitted with care and accuracy, that we have a high degree of confidence that we have what was originally written down to a very high percentage. That's agreed on by quite a few people. Now, there's still some challenges that remain about individual passages and individual verses, but as a whole, because of the number of manuscripts, the early manuscripts, the nature of individual manuscripts, we can have more confidence in the New Testament, I would argue, than any other ancient book of antiquity. That's one piece. The second piece is things like archeology. span Now, again, archeology span doesn't prove something's true it helps corroborate a story that's being told. So I recently had an archeologist named Joel Kramer who lives in Amman, Jordan, and he's been studying archeology span for decades. Had him come on my YouTube channel and just talked about some of the recent finds about Sodom and Gomorrah, about the birthplace of Jesus, about the upper room with the disciples, about where Abraham camped and tented, I mean, he, we went through 10 to 12 archaeological discoveries that match up with the biblical record. Now, there's some places we haven't found yet. There's some cases where there is debate about the date and location. But over and over again, he told me and made the case for, we have strong archaeological support that corroborates these people, places, and events really took place. The other line out of this, of course, is fulfilled prophecy we could talk about. And then there's also some internal cues within the scriptures themselves that help us realize the Bible was not invented, but the writers care about truth. So, for example, you have something called the criterion of embarrassment, that when a writer reports material that's embarrassing or disparaging to his or her position, it's unlikely to have been made up because when we make up stuff, it's usually to make ourselves look good or get out of trouble. 
Well, you see these things in the Old Testament, like God's chosen people used to be slaves. Isn't that interesting? David, right? King David, who we're told the Messiah will come through that lineage. King David was a murderer and an adulterer. You see faults in Moses. You get to the New Testament. Just look at the apostles. You know, Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus calls him Satan. They argue over Gethsemane. I mean, over and over again, the Bible is a realistic book that describes the faults of its people without reveling in it. But in many ways, what could be argued a very honest fashion and approach? My answer to you is like the 30,000 foot view that raises more questions than it can answer. But it's the kind of approach that I would take to say that the Bible is unique and we have good, solid reason to believe that it's really true. Yeah, no, it's so good. I, you know, obviously you've written numerous books um, on the subject and you've got all sorts of videos, you know, on your YouTube channel. Um, and so there, there's so much more I know you could say. We'll, we'll link to all of those things for our listeners that want to dive even deeper, you know, into this subject and in other subjects that, that you cover. We'll link to those in our show notes. Um, but that is so good. I want to, you know, I know our time is, is almost up and I want to, you've got a, a new book that just came out not too long ago. I think it was last year, if I remember right. Um, and so it's called Chasing Love, but, um, tell us briefly what, what the book is about and, um, and, you know, where our listeners can, can, uh, buy a copy. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. I basically wrote it for Scotty, Shauna and Shane, which are my three kids. And mm-hmm. I started to notice that there's so many confusions and lies about marriage, sex, and singleness. And although there's a lot of good resources in the church, I didn't find any that I thought really gave a theological, cultural, and worldview kind of backing to this that would help kids not only know what the scripture says, but why it says certain things that it does. So the first third of the book I'm really stripping away faulty ideas that I think a lot of young people today have about the nature of love, about truth, about what it means to be a person who's truly free, about identity. In the middle of the book, I say, okay, here's God's design for sex, marriage, and singleness. And then the last third of the book, I talk about some of the thorny, what you might say, just hot cultural issues like sex abuse, pornography, uh, cohabitation, the LGBTQ conversation. And now that we've stripped away cultural ideas, talked about God's design, we can look at each of those issues with, uh, I think, biblical understanding, but also graciousness of how to look at these topics in which a lot of people are hurting and approach it in a loving manner. So that's the vision of it. People, I mean, if you just Google it, you can find it anywhere, but I've got links on my website. It's on amazon.com. And you know what's interesting? One quick thing is I tried to make it as practical for parents to use with their kids as possible. My first book, Ethics, I was like, oh, 10 chapters. That makes sense. I was like 26 or 28, and every book has 10 chapters. And then when I wrote this one like 15 years later, I was like, wait a minute. I'm a parent. (laughs) What if if I did shorter chapters kids would likely read, and I did 30 and gave parents the one-month challenge of reading Mm. a three to four – page chapter with their kids each night and talked about it. And a ton of parents 
are doing that with their kids. And it just gives me goosebumps because the whole purpose of the book is not to tell kids exactly how high their shorts or skirts should be, but to frame it biblically and say, work this out in relationship and wisdom with adults who've been there. And a ton of people are actually doing it. Yeah, I love that. I know our, our listeners are going to be very interested in that. As you know, we've talked about already. We did the the Faith in the Family series, and we did an episode on you know how do you talk to your your kids about cultural issues, and we we talked just just about several. We talked about you know talking to your kids about abortion, and talking to your kids about sexuality, and just sort of you know some of those principles that can guide you, and and offered some resources. But this this is going to be I know um, a resource that that our listeners are going to want to pick up, and so we'll link specifically to that that book on in the show notes as well and so yeah that that's a that's incredible thanks for putting that together not only for your own family but for lots of families Uh, that is such a needed resource um within the church within our culture today so um thank you again for for being on where can where can folks find you what 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 are the best places uh online to go if somebody wants to um to follow along you know what, Pat, probably the best place is my website. It's just seanmcdowell.org, where I have links to a YouTube channel that I'm on um, and have an upcoming conversation with an atheist, interestingly enough. I'm on Twitter, on Instagram, also on TikTok might surprise you, but uh, <laughs> I do TikTok to reach a new generation. Yes. But seanmcdowell.org would probably link to most of those different options that may help. Perfect. We'll link to that in the show notes. But Sean, thanks so much for for your time and uh, God bless you and your ministry. We're grateful to have you on Root Like Faith today. Thanks, Pat. Well, friend, we are so, so grateful you have joined us. Wasn't that a great conversation with Pat and Sean? I hope you loved it as much as we did. Again, you can follow Sean on Instagram at Sean McDowell, and um, it's spelled S-E-A-N-M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L. Well, if we haven't met you yet, we want to get to know you. And we absolutely love when you send us messages. I love hearing from you. So you can follow us on Instagram at Patrick W. Schwank and at Ruth Schwank or on Facebook. Also, don't forget everything we talked about will be at rootlikefaith.com forward slash podcast. Again, we welcome you into our family here at Root Like Faith. Would you do us a big favor and leave us a review or rating and share this podcast with your friends? It just takes a second and it's a tremendous help to us as we spread the word about Root Like Faith. We're so grateful for your help in getting the word out. Okay, friend, well, we will chat soon and we hope you have the best week.